Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance, host of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a little bit about the podcast before we get into this episode? For sure. Thanks, Spencer. Choose the Hard Way is a podcast where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. You can find us at choosethehardway.com and we're on all platforms, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you listen. So please come check us out. It's a great episode, a great podcast. I was on an episode. Obviously, you maybe are interested in at least one of us if you're here. So good place to start if you're curious, but there's many more um, decorated and interesting people on Andrew's podcast as well. So Andrew, let's, we, we just watched Mads Pedersen win uh, kind of like a textbook breakaway day. It was still, I still have some questions for you about that performance. It was pretty impressive. It, it almost looked like a, I don't know, like you're familiar with like a local pro at a like home at a race and then just kind of like systematically dismantling everyone and then winning it easily in the sprint. That's kind of what it looked like. But let's flash back to yesterday really quick to talk about stage 12 on Alpe d'Huez first. Tom Pickock, our sweet baby boy, um, the, the, the child of this podcast, um, won on Alpe d'Huez, really, really big win. Tade Pagachar put in some what I interpreted as like almost I, Ian Boswell said this, the former Skyrider too. They were almost like performative. It was almost like WWE attacks. Like, did he actually think he was going to drop Jonas? Probably not, but he like had to show us that he still had the fight. Um, other than that, it was kind of uh, I mean, Pickock had maybe the best descent I've ever seen, at least televised descent, to get up to the breakaway after missing the breakaway, which was really impressive. I mean, what was your big takeaway from that Alp Duet stage, which was not nearly as exciting as the day before, probably because everyone was really excited or really tired from the day before. You look a little tired as well, Spencer. Did you have a big night? Oh, man, I'm so tired. Um, now, I just got up early the last three days to watch the stages from the gun, and I'm feeling it. Yeah, that Cat 1 slash Pro Hustle. I love it. Yeah, Pagachar is the Teflon Don. That's that's what I'm going to say. That's That was my takeaway from the Alp West stage. I agree with you. He's got this vibe where whether it's COVID, bad vibes, you know, losing three minutes, it just doesn't stick, right? So he did have that. I'm, I'm going to the top rope. I'm Jimmy Superfly Snuka. I'm the rock. I'm going to flex right now. Maybe I'm not going anywhere, but I'm going to look good while I'm not winning the Tour de France or will he? Yeah, I laugh at those when I listen to them back. The, the jokes are coming so thick and fast that I, I, I cannot laugh in real time. Um, I, my brain cannot process them quickly enough. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I thought after that stage, I thought Tade, I was like, well, he's going to win the tour. I mean, he, he's, we, we thought he was sick with COVID right at the end of stage 11. Doesn't appear to be sick with COVID because you'd have to imagine he wouldn't have been able to be the second fastest. GC rider on Alpe d'Huez, if that was the case. And today in the transition, I mean, that was a transition day, but it was a hard stage, really fast day. I don't think a COVID positive rider, at least with symptoms, could hold in. So I walked away from Alpe d'Huez thinking like, oh, Tade's got this. And then I talked to someone else who has a lot more experience in the sport than I do. And they're like, hold on a second. Like, well, where would he take the time back? And like, how would he do that? And I started to dig, dig into it. He's never actually. If you remember stage eight of last year's tour, Tadai put 32 seconds into 
Jonas, or no, more, sorry. He put like five minutes into Jonas. That's the only time he's ever put more than 32 seconds into him in a single stage. There's really only four GC days left. So he would have to take more time. He would have to take more than 32 seconds every stage to win this tour. I don't know if he could do it. I mean, what, what do you think? Do you believe in the power of magical thinking, Spencer? I, I, I will for this exercise. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought your breakdown of last year's tour and the seeming impossibility of Pogacar clawing back any time based on his past performances, made it did make a lot of sense. I think that that's a correct logical analysis. Equally, I'm going to quote Limp Biscuit here, which I don't do very often, but heavy <laughs> is the head that wears the crown. Yes, and, yeah, it is very applicable. You know, yeah, and this is this is part of what I was picking up yesterday. Some of my key takeaways are uh, Ineos has no belief in Thomas's ability to win this race. So that's observation number one. We can dig into that, but I don't think they believe that he can actually win the race. I I believe that he can win the race. I don't think his team believes he has a chance in hell of winning this race. So that's observation number one. Observation number two, Pogacar, Teflon Don, looking strong. We don't know. It seems impossible that he could claw back time, but I think that he actually can. Number three, I'm picking up Cadell Evans vibes from Vinegard. And I don't know. We haven't seen him have to have the sustained level of being the leader at this level in the tour before. And this is a really intense experience for someone. And he's experienced a lot of success as an athlete before. This is really different. And we've seen athletes crumble under this level of pressure before. Whether he will or not, I don't know. But I'm, I'm just kind of, that's part of the vibe that I'm picking up. I, I don't, you know, I would agree with you. We haven't seen him like break, have like a screaming match after the stage because someone like almost stepped on his dog. I don't know if you remember this. Um, oh, it's because, was it the dog or was it because somebody touched his stuffed animal? I think uh, he had the, he had the, the lion that you get after winning the stage and somebody touched it. He didn't want anyone I'm touching I'm his stuffed animal. I'm even remembering this. Yes. That was so weird. Yeah. He would, I, I mean, if, if, yeah, if Cadell, if you're listening to this, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Um, but yeah, he would get these like lions and like really form some type of bond with them. Um, it, it foretold problems, you know, and a lot of times he did collapse. Um, you could argue if that was a mental collapse, physical collapse. He did win the tour once. Um, he, he seemed to work past that. You know, I get the same vibes from Jonas, but the, we don't really have any evidence of him ever collapsing. That's kind of the most astonishing thing about him he looks like he's always like if you think i look tired i mean that guy looks like he's lived in a basement uh has not eaten a full meal in years and is like always about to just collapse and he never does i mean he's really really a robust rider doesn't crash a lot he doesn't look like a great bike handler but clearly he is um yeah without the power of magical thinking at least on the surface it appears to be a tall order to overthrow his reign I mean, this is not over though. It's funny you mentioned. Well, let's let's go. So I think Pogacar, as you say, I mean, guy looks guy lost what like almost three minutes in a stage. Didn't really seem to mind. Even made a joke about it the next or after the stage that he's just going to get it back the next day. I was pretty impressed by his ability to do that, and he only had to give quotes because he has the white jersey, which he probably doesn't care about. So he just lost the jersey, the leader's jersey. He has to stick around and give 
interviews about like how he lost the leader's jersey. That's kind of unprecedented. Normally, you just kind of slink away and go back to your hotel. He's good. He, he, he's, he's fantastic, obviously. My concern is he's never, in the past 24 months, never actually been that much better than Jonas, except that one stage. That's what I would flag as an issue. Tomorrow's actually a really good day for him. In, uh, I think it's in Mend, and it finishes. It's this really steep finish, and it goes down and finishes on like a run, an airport runway, I think. Um, could pull some time back there, but he's got to get chunks, you know, like he would need multiple 30 second chunks and then have an amazing time trial. Not impossible, but if you're, I mean, it, we'll see. I, I, at first glance, I agree with you about Jonas and the Cadell comparison. If you dig a little bit deeper, he is, does seem more robust than that. And I want to, we'll circle back to that. I have a question for you on that, but let's talk about Garrett Thomas really quick. You think he could win this tour. His team clearly does not. Garrett Thomas is just doing his thing. Like he's not responding to accelerations. We saw in Altuez, Jonas and Tade were up front. You know, Jonas is responding to Tade surges. Garrett just doesn't even like, it almost was like he was in a different race. He just rode the exact same pace. I think it's an amazing way to ride onto the podium. Tell me really quick, how does he win this? Like how would that happen except like, abductions like in triple to Belleville. <laughs> Spencer, your powers of math are stronger than mine. And you, again, you can give like the detailed breakdown of how this is mathematically impossible for Thomas to do this. Just what I saw on Altuez, number one, I, I think that that stage demonstrated his team has given up on him and they don't believe that he can actually win. And can we just and, say why really quick, just for the listeners? I, I, yeah. You know, if, if we think back on, uh, Death Star era Sky or the Lance era where your entire team is all in all the time, giving everything for you to win. They're never expending, you know, they're not going to walk down two extra stairs if somebody on the team could carry them because they don't want to expend any extra energy. And you could say sending Pidcock out, he potentially could drop back to help pace Thomas in the event he was in trouble with the GC. But that that actually could have happened because Thomas was under pressure from Vinegard and Pagachar and Pitcock went for the win. It was a spectacular win. It was awesome for the team. But if the team believed that they could win, I don't think Pitcock would have gone on the attack like that and did what he did yesterday. So, yeah, you know, no, chapeau to Tom. And I don't think this is great. If is a, It's definitely not demonstrating any belief in Thomas's ability because they didn't help him. I, You're exactly right. I agree with it. I'll tell you why when, when you're done saying how he could win. Oh, yeah. I'm just ranting. Uh, the second component of this, what I saw in Thomas's ride, and this is Thomas will not win because he is better than Vinegard and Pagachar. I think, honestly, I just think I have the sense that Vinegard, the pressure might be too much for him. I was watching some older Chris Horner butterfly effect videos last night. I kind of went into a YouTube wormhole, which happens to me sometimes. And I watched his butterfly effect where he talked about the day that Floyd Landis did his Jack Daniel shot attack and won the tour de France. And I don't know if you recall that, <laughs> Yeah, I but that well. I, had, I had actually completely forgotten that Horner was riding for Lotto at that time. And he was a loyal Lieutenant to Cadell. And he was just talking about Cadell's experience on that day. And then there was an interview with Cadell afterwards. I've met, uh, 
haven't spent a ton of time with him. Cadell has been like super nice person when I met him in real life. And we have to keep in mind, think about how you feel after you go out and do, you know, if you're an amateur cyclist out there, like you've gone, you've gone and done a six hour bike race. Think about how shitty you feel when you get off the bike and if someone stuck a microphone in your face and you needed to talk to 25 million people, are you going to be at your absolute best in the moment that that happens? Or might you be a little freaked out, particularly when you have a hundred thousand people, uh, wrapped in tricolors trying to joust you with a flag. Um, so anyway, I think Vinegard cancels himself out. Pagachar, I don't know what happens. Maybe he wins, maybe he doesn't. But I think that Thomas has a puncher's chance. And what I saw yesterday was Vinegard and Pagachar kept punching each other. And in the process, they canceled out themselves. So if you go back and watch that stage really closely at 3.1 kilometers to go on Alptuez, Pagachar attacks. Vinegard responds. Thomas immediately gap, just gets dropped immediately, but he just goes into Death Star from stare at the power meter mode. He's he's actually out of the frame, Spencer. And then suddenly it's like a tractor beam. He like starts to come back into the picture. And Vinegard and Pagachar are just sitting there. He brings himself back. 1.2 kilometers to go. Same thing happens. Pagachar attacks again. Thomas, straight out the back, out of the frame, staring. You don't even see him. And then like 10 seconds later, see him staring at his power meter, comes back into the frame, reattaches with 700 meters to go. Now, that's not putting him ahead. It's not going to win the Tour de France. But we don't know what's going to happen when Vinegard and Pagachar continue to just assault each other on these climbs. And there's a chance that one of them blows up. They both blow up. That's probably the only scenario where... Thomas wins the race or one of them potentially gets COVID, has a crash. You know, we can't count on those things, but Thomas has a puncher's chance and say what you will about him. But I, I like this strategy. He's like, he's Shaq Diesel. He's just going steady and bringing himself back into the race every time. I feel like, well, yeah, Thomas definitely has a puncher's chance. Like anything could happen to Pogacar and Vindegaard. The question would be, is there anything Ineos could do to help him in those moments? It is a little disrespectful if you think about it from Pogaccio now that you mention it. He's only four seconds ahead of Thomas. Like He's just assuming that he's going to beat Garrett Thomas in the final time trial to get second. Potentially, he doesn't care, I guess. That that would probably be the answer. Like, Why does Tade Pogaccio care about second at the Tour? Like, Second, third, who gives a shit? I just want to win. Um, you know, cause he was, if, you know, if he really cared, he would have kept attacking. He would have kept the pace on after attacking to keep Garrett Thomas off the back. You know, I, th- I'm pretty sure that Ineos is just thinking Garrett Thomas, his, you know, that strategy worked when we were super, super strong. Like you, basically you have to be the best time trialist in the race to ride like that. If you think of, you know, peak Bradley Wiggins or peak Chris Froome. They didn't have to take any time in the mountains. They could just ride steady because they knew when they'd get to the time trial. I mean, those guys, you you like forget how big those time gaps were. You go back and look at the the time trial time gaps, and Wiggins is putting minutes in the other GC contenders. So, you know, it's unclear to me if Thomas rides and he's riding steady Eddie because that's all he can do. It's a smart strategy for him. Like surging isn't gonna. He's getting up the climbs as fast as he can. I'm just worried that's not fast enough. And then I, I wonder where does he get the time if he can't time trial faster than them? I mean, what could happen though? I mean, he's 226 down. We all saw Michael Rasmussen in what was that, 2006? Do you remember? Or was that 2007? No, maybe 
2007. It was like this disastrous time trial, final time trial where he crashed like four times, lost minutes. There's no guarantees in a final time trial. So, you know, if he, if he hangs close, another thing too, is what if he attacks, what are those guys going to do? That would be an interesting thing to see. Like tomorrow, what if he goes, does, does Jonas chase him? Does Tade chase him? And, you know, that's another scenario where he could gain time on them. I don't think, I think Ineos is thinking we're probably going to get a podium and that's fantastic. And we need to get as many stage wins as possible to garnish that if it's not a win. Yeah. And I think the fact that they don't, they demonstrated, they absolutely don't believe in his ability to win the race. Like we completely saw it yesterday. They were waiting for, I think they probably thought Thomas was going to blow up. They had the jumper cables ready to revive him. Um, but that help wasn't going to come from the front of the race. And certainly Pidcock wasn't going to drop back from riding himself into glory. (laughs) Yeah. It was like a hundred meters from winning. Sorry. We needed to come back. Can you go back after you cross the finish line too? That's another question. Just turn around and ride down the mountain. Yeah, totally. Nice descent, Tom. And I, I do want to talk about that descent, but first Spencer, what was your take on, on kind of that dynamic between Pidcock and Thomas? Like, have you heard anything behind the scenes about what's going on over there? Heard nothing. I mean, you don't hear anything out of that team. That is a that's a tight. What do they call that in secession? I need a clean jar. I mean, that is a tight, <laughs> <laughs> a tight bubble. Um, now, I you know I don't know. I it's always hard to in Garrett's someone that's hard to read. I you know as you mentioned a few episodes ago that it's like they got jokes. It's like they're doing a comedy routine. Part of that is just because they're funny people. You know, like if you're a British person of a certain personality and you've been around other lads your whole life, you've had to get a sense of humor to kind of survive. But I also think it's there to kind of obscure any type of cracks, you know, it's like, we don't, we have no idea, like, what is the relationship between Pickock and Thomas, you know, Garrett Thomas probably thinks he can win this race. Don't you think? Yeah, I abs- I think that Thomas has total belief. That's another reason I believe in him. And honestly, heading into this race, I never thought I'd be making these statements uh, at this point in the race. But Thomas just looks like someone who has total conviction in his ability to win. He's going to crack on. He's going to keep pedaling. He doesn't care that he just got dropped. He knows his limits really well. And we have this sensational generation of new young riders. But he's been there. He's done that. He's been in these situations many times. And his long and storied career. And I think that that gives him an advantage psychologically and tactically. But I did want to take a quick look at the difference between Pidcock's reaction at the end of the race. And obviously he won the stage, so he's elated, but kind of his experience of that stage and then Vineyard's, right? So Pidcock at the end, he said, this was one of the best experiences of my life. I think he said it was maybe the second best experience of his life after winning the Olympic gold medal. He thought having the fans out there being so close to everybody, it was incredible. And then Vinegard, who holds on to the yellow Jersey, when they interviewed him, his comment was, it's a big risk to get COVID when a lot of spectators are shouting in your face face. I mean, obviously I think that's obvious to everyone, but I mean, I guess that's how it is. And yeah, we can just hope that we won't get COVID and I hope that nobody gets COVID that's not the way, nice way to leave the tour. So we just hope for the best. Totally legit. And I think that that's a really fair concern. That level of proximity, you're definitely having transmission of uh, probably some saliva particles and other things onto these riders' respiration from people being so close to them. Not to mention, Spencer, I know that we, uh, you had the point of view that uh, 
giving TV time to the protesters the other day would incentivize further protests. I really would love to hear what you think about some of the behavior we saw on Alpduez, which I know some of it's just run in the mill at this point, but if you're setting off flares or smoke bombs in the race of a rider in the face of a rider who's, you know, it's seven watts per kilogram, do you belong on that mountain? I mean, Alpduez has always been crazy. Remember Nibali, his, he got his back broken by spectators? Yeah, but is that cool? No, I think it's definitely not cool. I think the only reason, I think the only way to fix this, unfortunately, is just avoid Alpduez. Like they've, it's been like lathered up into so much, such a frenzy. And it's like what I was saying where, it's like a societal breakdown where you're like, well, okay, you could send a couple cops up, but there's like hundreds of thousands of people on these climbs. And if they want to behave poorly, it's like some type of almost like societal disease that infects people where it's like the poor behavior. It's like a daycare or something. If, if like one kid is acting really bad, the rest will. I don't know if there's anything to be done. It's obviously not good. In, in, it in feels unacceptable. Yeah, it feels like Burning Man. It stopped being cool in 2008, and then it's attracted, you know, it's become something else in the interim. So it's almost like Alptuez is is like a hot topic now. You're buying a version of something that you've seen on TV at the mall. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, because then when you watch, we had the one guy who I, did, I thought was going to impale Jonas uh, on stage 11. But other than that, it actually was like a super, seemed like a fairly well-controlled climb. And it's, it's definitely something about Alptuez where it, the mystique has gotten, the party mystique has gotten so big for fans that it feels like it'd be very difficult to unwind. Um, you said something about someone that I've completely blanked on and forgotten to come back to. I think, so, I mean, really though, with the quote with Jonas is he must be so, I mean, he must just be thinking about COVID all the time because that's the main thing that would stop him from winning this tour. And as Wouldn't you said- you be? Oh, it's all I would be thinking about. And it's all I'm currently thinking about, about finishing this tour. And I'm podcasting. I'm not even racing. There's no prize for me. And I don't want to get COVID during this tour. And I just think that's what yellow does to you, you know? It's like what you said about the heavy, <laughs> yeah, the, the famous limp biscuit quote, heavy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> no one, No one wrote that in history before, limp biscuit. Never. That was the first time Fred Durst yeah. got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I did. I loved the Merchant of Venice, that play they wrote as well. I just think yellow just turns you into like a buzzkill, really, to, to put it in the simplest terms possible. And where Tom doesn't have to worry about that. One thing I want to ask you about, Tom, I got, I said in my newsletter that I thought this is like he could be a future GC star because he can time trial really, really well. He can climb really, really well. Or so I thought because he, one probably the hardest mountain stage of this tour so i would think he's a good climber someone in the comments poked back at this and was like well he lost two minutes on the gc group he beat Froome and louis menchie's like i don't think that was actually a good climbing performance like would how would you respond to that i haven't looked at the watts per kilo have you does he have a public power file out there no but i can tell you another piece of relevant information so Pickock rode Alptuez in 41 minutes, 49 seconds. And this is after being off the front for, you know, he was in the Peloton for the first climb, but he was off the front. And even though that was a descent, that was a huge effort to bridge up to the breakaway. It was like a minute, almost two minutes that he bridged on the descent. He's putting out a lot of watts whenever he's pedaling there. 
And just to put that into perspective, when Garrett Thomas won in 2018 on Alpes he did 41 minutes, 15 seconds. So it's only really 30 seconds slower than the winning time in 2018. And same thing with Thibaut Pino. In 2015, Pino wins that stage in 41 minutes, 16 seconds. So he's in the same ballpark as those two guys who won on Alpes d'Huez with a with having have been off the front all day, you know, doing a significant amount of work, I thought it was pretty impressive. And he put, he still put two minutes into Chris Froome, who's not, who's as good as we've seen him in years. You know, it's not like he's a scrub. It's not me. Yeah. And you can't discount the level of focus and concentration and the fatigue that must create that would result from the descending that Pitcock put in to get into that position. That had to be mentally exhausting, and that creates a physical toll as well, I would think, before he got to that climb. So, yeah, I think the climbing was was outstanding. Like, you know, just listening to your description of the times, it sounds like he's a world-class climber, number one. Number yeah, two, I really like literally, yeah, as we yeah. <laughs> listing the times, that's actually, without dispute, a world-class climb. Yeah, yeah, one of the best climbers in the world, indisputably. So we'll go ahead and say he can climb. I definitely think that he has the potential to be a Grand Tour winner. And I was going to throw this back to you because I, I have a broader question about future Grand Tour winners and the intersection of that with cyclocross and wanted to like dip into the past with Lars Boom, Zdenek Stebar, a couple of other riders. I wanted to talk about the descent for Spencer and a lot has been written about this incredibly spectacular descent, something that I didn't hear mentioned and I may have missed this, but we can't forget that in the 2016 tour on stage eight, Froome debuted the pedaling super tuck and completely smoked the entire field with a, an attack on the descent of the Parasword. So Froome, yes, he's been in this horrific accident. He's coming back. I'm sure that his descending is not on par with what it once was. He also can no longer use the super tuck because it's been banned. Part of the advantage of that position is it affords you a much lower center of gravity. So you're just going to have more control of the bike, even though it's, it's counterintuitive because it looks like such an extreme position. But Froome is not a bad descender, and he got totally smoked. Pidcock was on a completely different level than anyone else in the race. So it was incredibly impressive descending. I, I don't have enough data to analyze this, but Spencer, I bet that you do. Pidcock, lower center of gravity, tiny frontal area relative to most other riders. So I think he has a lower coefficient of drag probably. I think that those are two advantages that I didn't really hear discuss in addition, of course, to his exceptional bike handling. What was your take on the descent? Well, just to give people a little bit of context if they didn't see the stage. So Pickock was supposed to be in the breakaway to try to win the stage. He missed the breakaway. They go over an HC climb, which is the hardest level of climb there is. It's a two-minute gap. Yumbo Visma has purposely held that at two minutes, thinking that, well, no one can bridge because you want it so far away that no one attacks from your group. It settles your group down. It's like a pacifying effect. Pickock attacks at the top of the climb and bridges a two-minute gap on the descent to then join the breakaway after having missed the breakaway. So super impressive. Definitely, his center gravity is definitely an advantage, but like Domenico Pozzovivo is the same size, if not smaller. Like there are a lot of small riders who are not that good at descending. So it's like a, like if you're six seven, that's an advantage in basketball, but it doesn't automatically mean like there's a lot of six, seven people that are not fantastic at basketball. Like 
it gets you in the conversation. It, it helps, but I mean, that skill was unbelievable. I mean, there's that, there's a picture of him or video of him passing the Kofidis guy who's not, not that much bigger than him. I mean, a lot of these guys are really small. Pitcock just has like a skill that is like out of this world. Not quite sure I've ever seen anything like that. He's also lighter too, which is a, dis- a major disadvantage versus someone like Peter Sagan, who was a good descender in his time. Yes, and I suspect that someone with the larger mass, I think it, that it aids you in getting up to terminal velocity. My guess would be, and I haven't ridden these passes, so I'll try to get data from someone who's actually done it. But if you're a rider of a larger size, there are probably times when you're having to brake more, would be my guess. And like particularly in and out of corners, you're having to reaccelerate a greater mass. So I'm not sure that having a larger mass actually is a massive benefit on some of these descents. But my uh, my understanding of physics could be deficient. I don't know here. how much he was braking. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of a, it's kind of a wide open yeah. descent. The one you, I'm trying to find that one, I'm trying to find the exact climb um, just so we're not wrong on it, but where Froome rode away, it was a unique descent in that it was really, um, it was like really wide open and, and I don't think it wasn't super steep so you could pedal the whole time and there wasn't a lot of turns. So it's like perfect for a bigger rider and Froome like quotations bigger, like bigger than the smallest rider in the group. Um, so there are climbs, I guess, yeah, or descents where being small helps. It definitely is helping him with the lower center of gravity. But I mean, look at Louis Minchie's like he's a really he's not a tall man and he was getting roasted on that descent. Yeah, fair enough. He got smoked. I noticed two other details with Pidcock's riding yesterday, or I guess really his kit and his approach generally. You know, we of course have to mention Vestgate one more time, uh, the opening time trial, Thomas wearing the vest, but old sky slash Aneos was back in this stage. Pidcock, I noticed, had on his arrow socks with like the tripwire fabric. So, you know, he was getting some kind of edge, I think, from having arrow socks on in addition to everything else. And I also noticed that he had a liter bottle heading into that final climb. So he was really topping off his nutrition before uh, taking on Alp Duez. I, I don't remember at, which, at what point he chucked it, but it was noticeable to me because you don't typically see riders in the tour with that larger bottle size. But he, he was riding with a liter uh, size bottle on his down tube, which seemed unusual, but he it's- really was trying to get in all the nutrition. Highly unusual. We we actually need the climate protesters back. I mean, it's been so hot, unbelievably hot. Like today, it was hot on Alpe d'Huez. Like in those valleys, it was seeing like 37 degrees Celsius, which I'm just checking really quick is 98 degrees. I mean, it's it's toasty. And today looked really brutal. Um, it's concerning to me that, have you noticed since we've gotten out of Denmark, there's been no rainy days, which I don't know the last time I've ever seen that where maybe 2003 during that heat wave tour, no rainy days so far in the tour. It's, it's really concerning. Um, and yeah, the, the leader bottle water bottle, that's like another Ineos does like the stupid things, right. Or they just like think they're obviously a very smart team, but they, like remember with Froome's big breakaway at the zero where they're like, we're just going to give them more food. <laughs> it's like, how has no one thought of this before? It's like, you know, what's cool. A little bit of food, you know, it's even better. A lot of food. And same thing with Pitcock where they're just like, you know, you know what's cool? A lot of water when it's hot. Let's give them these big bottles that exist, but no one uses for some reason. So yeah, I thought it was a really smart decision on their part. 
Uh, so you asked the question about his prospects as a Grand Tour rider. I wanted to bounce this back to you because we've seen other riders cross over from cyclocross into the World Tour before. Zdenek Shibar, one of them, Lars Boom before him, both really successful riders, primarily classics focus, and then later into more of that hybrid classic, potential classics winner, domestique kind of role. Where do we see Pidcock headed and are we going to enter this era? Do we potentially see Wout do a Wiggins lose 10 kilos of mass, somehow retain his power, and then MVDP potentially does the same thing and suddenly we have this this triumvirate of cyclocross gods battling it out for a Grand Tour title? I think if I ever get a full night of sleep again, that will be my dream. I don't think that's happening though. Um, Wout and MVDVP seem very happy with their lives. I mean, that's, I mean, we saw Tom Dumoulin just burn out, you know, like he was a similarly tall man, um, probably quite big in his natural habitat, starve himself for years. And then he was just grumpy and unhappy and just retired from the sport because he was sick of being so light. I, I think it's a miserable experience. Actually, this is the first time we've seen Garrett Thomas this light since 2018, probably because of that, that it's just so hard to do. Those guys are, they just live in life. You know, like that's a fun, that's a fun job they have currently. I don't think they're going to lose any weight. Pitcock, on the other hand, is naturally so light. I think he could be. I mean, obviously it's somewhat random. Like Jonas Vindegaard, who saw him coming three years ago? And now he appears to be the best GC rider in the world. So there's something about being a fantastic Grand Tour star that, it's a little bit of like alchemy inside the body where you have to be absurdly consistent, um, very good three weeks into a race. We don't know these things about Tom Pickock. Is, this is his first grand tour, I think. Let me check that. But he, he definitely appears to have the ability, like the time trialing, the climbing, those are the two most important things. And then his bike handling is so good. He can doesn't have to worry about all the, the crashes and getting caught out of position. I mean, he's actually kind of terrible at positioning, but he'll get better. And he has the bike handling skills to get better at it where he doesn't have to worry about, you know, all those stages. Think of the stage five this year. Like was Tom Peacock even under duress during that? I don't think so. So yeah, I definitely think he could be a tour contender someday. Yeah. There's a Ryan holiday book titled ego is the enemy, but if you want to be a grand tour winner, it's, it's actually not. And Tom has the appropriate level of hubris and ego, I believe to be a grand tour winner, winner coupled with the level of talent that's needed. So I think he has the disposition to take this on and it's such a young age to have such a high level of achievement, achievement and like to wear it so well, like Olympic champion, cyclocross world champion. Now, Alpduez stage winner. I think we're going to see him be a grand tour winner in the not too distant future. I also was wondering as I was watching this yesterday and considering this question that you proposed, Spencer, uh, it was on my mind as well. I also was just thinking about what's what happens when Bernal comes back? Is he going to come back at full strength? What happens when we have Bernal? What happens when we have Carapaz potentially in the mix at the tour and we have the battle of all of these giants? What do you think goes down? It's a good question. This is another like great dream subject of mine. Um, yeah, but those, some of the Bernal stuff's a little unknowable. Like, will he come back at full strength? We just don't know. Um, let's assume he does. Um, I still think Carapaz is not, and I'm even left with more question marks after that Giro um, than I had even potentially before. But 
you know, what he wrote to third at last year's tour, he had at no point looked like he could put time into the first two, uh, Jonas and Tade. Bernal's better. I mean, that was an impressive zero win last year. I just don't, you know, when you look at those watts per kilos numbers, especially what Jonas did, you know, what Jonas did on stage 11 at altitude is better than any Bernal performance ever at altitude. So, and, he, and he's not a good time trialist. That's where it gets really tricky. You know, if he's losing time in the time trials, that I don't quite understand where he gets that time back. But, you know, that would be fun. It would be awesome to see, to see him, Carapaz, Pidcock, Tade, Jonas all duking it out in a Tour de France in the future. It's, it could get a little, who knows what, what's going on at Ineos. They always have a weird hierarchy there. I don't think who I don't think they're going to move Pickcock into a GC role for a while, so potentially that doesn't affect Bernal that much in the short term. I just want to see him back racing before I make any assumptions. I have a little game for you. This works perfectly because we're talking about Pickcock. Um, I, I haven't named it yet, but like basically like media darling power rankings. So the two young darlings of the sport, Tom Pickcock versus Remco Evenepoel. Where, where does pick up where where is he ranking versus remco his like media nemesis because they're roughly the same age um both like slightly cocky young stars before this tour it was like you know remco won liege and then now it's like remco who who is that guy that belgian guy we all liked i barely remember him yeah i think it depends whether you're in mainland europe or in the uk probably and we we have to remember remco you know, took his hands off the bars. Right. So I think that that diminishes popularity probably with some, I mean, it amplified his detractors and their thoughts about him. And yeah, he just, he's got a couple of, you know, things in his past, what was in his pocket when he had that crash. There's a lot of things that are not on the dance card for Pitcock right now. So I, I don't think that Pitcock has some of those, question marks for fans that we might see with Evan Pohl and Evan Pohl similar to Pidcock like wow what a joy to watch that guy ride when he's in good shape and decides he's going to destroy everyone it's very similar to watching Wout or MVDP when he's in a break it doesn't matter how big the group is no one pulls because he's so much stronger than everyone else it's a joy to watch him ride I will so he wins Liège. Obviously, that's that's a great result. His next World Tour race, Tour of Switzerland. This is Rimco. It's eleventh overall. I thought he was very disappointing. I still don't. I'm still not even convinced that he's a fantastic alpine climber. Uh, I guess if this was like tennis, this is Pitcock serve because Rimco's not here at this tour. And then the Vuelta will be Rimco's serve because well, we he, he's going to be riding GC there. Yeah, and we keep waiting for this development to happen, but we've seen these other athletes who had this development at a much younger age, just the muscle memory, the skill level. I mean, Pidcock talked about how he used to duck into the woods on his bike on the way home from school, and that's part of where his bike handling comes from. His deep history with cyclocross and the bike handling skills that that's afforded him. And Rimco doesn't, he's just not at that level right in that regard and quickstep keeps talking about him needing further development and maturity to ride at this level but i don't know we're seeing so many riders come in at such a high level at such a young age right now yeah what do I, you think how does I, he how does he match up 
I have the same exact same like question. I mean, he's been a pro, a top level pro since 2019. You know, that's I remember watching him. I was in like a bar in Slovenia when he won San Sebastian that year, which is a big race. And that's now four years ago. Is that right? Yeah, 2000. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's four years ago, something like that. Three years ago. Who cares? Um, that's a long time ago. The development needs to have happened. And you really, if you break down a lot of cyclist careers, it's like 10 years from your first big win to your last big win. So it's like people, you know, if you win the tour at 21, like Tade, then it's like, oh my God, this guy's going to be 37 and still winning tours. But it doesn't normally work like that. You just get like a 10 year block. Um, if you're really good, like, um, my office mate over here today, you know, he won the world championships in 92, won the last tour in 2005. I think it was 92. It's a 13 year spread. And that's like really unique. So you really have 10 years from your first win to your last big win as a rule of thumb. So they can talk about development all they want, but I, yeah, it makes me a little confused about and slightly worried where I think, I almost think they should just, obviously we'll see how this Vuelta goes. That Liege win made me think like, is he a slower Philippe? And by slower, I mean sprint finish slow. Where is he just going to be like a stage hunter slash one day rider who can like tempt in GC sometimes, but that's not what he does full time. Um, and you can make a good life out of that. So our next one's Wout Van Aert versus Matthew Vanderpool. Has this been a bit of a hit to Vanderpool's ego, this tour? Watching his nemesis stomp all over this race while he dnfs really never yeah, looked good at any yeah, point yeah absolutely i this must be a huge blow to his ego and wout's ascendance has to be really hard for vanderpool to stomach like really hard are they really hard they really deep, they're just such rivalry. bitter yeah such bitter rivals and if you're not a cyclocross fan haven't participated in the sport or haven't gone back into the archives to check out some of the Vanderpool Wout duels, just take some time, get out the popcorn, get on YouTube, go deep. I guarantee that you're going to enjoy it. And so one of the outer line riders like texted me and he's like, he's like, what's the deal with Vanderpool? Like he was hyped and now he's just like, seems like he's a pack fill rider. I'm like, let's not go overboard. I do. I mean, he was good at the Giro. He was he he dazzled at the Giro. He got one stage win. You know, that's another thing that I'm like. One stage win. He was head and shoulders like better than everyone else in the in those, in the stage win battles there, and he walks away with one win. You know, that was something that was a little odd to me. And then he finishes the Giro his first Grand Tour ever. Clearly, that wiped him out. He's just didn't have it at any point this tour. Maybe a little silly to have him do two grand tours back to back after having never done a full one in his whole life but something i'd flag with vanderpool is he's a unique rider in that his first finished grand tour was the age of 27 which is i believe his current age there's definitely something happens to your body when you do grand tours and you're never quite as explosive as you were before so he was almost like not playing on a level playing field before when it's like you know he would when he was explosive he was explosive like something that i'd never seen before and we might just you know he might be dealing with a little bit of blunting of that speed as he gets used to racing it's an unnatural and unhealthy three weeks straight well let's look at this from a slightly different angle so spencer 
do you think it's possible that what we're actually seeing here is that because Matthew Vanderpool, Pidcock, and Wout, they have all been burning the candle at both ends. It's part of what makes them such compelling and interesting writers to watch, multidisciplinary competitors dipping in and out of cyclocross, road racing, mixing it up in the classics, and now in the grand tours. But is this just the natural teleology of, of, of where this, uh, of this type of approach is Vanderpool just at the logical conclusion of what happens when you go so hard for so long, or is that potentially going to happen to Wout is what I wonder. Cause like Wout of course came into the tour. He had a minor knee injury before the tour. Correct. Uh, I've, I've heard maybe that's not true. Okay. Is that fake? All right. Well, I think, there's like a I, I never verified this, but there's like a rule. Trust but verify. A rumored rule that it's at least encouraged, if not required, that if you want to be on the Belgian national team, you have to do Belgian national championships. It's a week uh, before the tour that's kind of inconvenient. Like, why would you want to do that? Like fly at leave your Alpine training camp to race in lowland Belgiums right right before the tour. So he but if you're injured, you can't be penalized for it. So think they came up with that injury but who knows i mean maybe you know we've all done it maybe he did hit his knee on the handlebars and thought no this kind of hurts i don't think i want to race this weekend doesn't seem like it's too serious doesn't seem to be affecting him but can he keep going this hard for this long well i just looked up his his race schedule for this year so a key thing about van art is he seems to like understand the, the game um he does really short cross seasons and he doesn't race mountain bike at all anymore um He's not really racing. He hasn't really raced cross at a high level for what, two years, three years, maybe Vanderpool is racing it at a really high level. Like he seems to genuinely want to win every race that's ever been on a calendar. Like he might be coming for like local main races. If you're not careful, if he hears about him, he'll be there. <laughs> He's going to be a Valmont bike park, uh, <laughs> yeah. December 16th. Get ready. Yeah, he, he will. Um, and then but Wout's schedule is is quite um, light compared to Vanderpool's, and even you know he's he's run into problems in the past few years where maybe his winter's been the load's been too high, and he's raced too much in the spring, and he gets to the spring classics, and he's not good. He really scaled it back this year, like he did Omloop as his first race, Perry Nice, and then he did the classics, and then he rested until the Dauphiné. We, we didn't see him from Liège to the Dauphiné, um, and then now the Tour. So I definitely think they're scaling it back worried exactly what you're talking about and we saw with marion voss the same thing that could be happening to vanderpool where she was the best in the world in three disciplines this is also should be like flashing warning signs for tom pitcock and then she just fell off a cliff because she got she just got burnt out physically probably mentally too yeah i mean if these guys were guitarists they'd want to be like ingwai malmstein kirk hammett Steve, I like they want to be out there shredding. They love putting on a performance. I think it's really, really hard for them to hold back. So I think if they want to play the long game and be in the sport for more than the next five years, they're going to have to necessarily change their approach to racing. Their bodies are going to help them do that because at some point it's going to be injury, chronic fatigue. I, I just don't believe that they can sustain the level that they're at right now and keep putting on these spectacular performances. But while they're doing it, I'm going to be cheering and I love watching it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Vanderpool is just like, yeah, he, he wants to be out there shredding like a great guitarist. 
Um, I do have to run to my other podcast. I have one question for you, though. So Mads Pedersen, obviously fantastic win today. Uh, I was surprised on the first stage. He, I, I think I have this right. I'll have to go back and double check. This is something I'll put in the newsletter. Um, this is my uh, Aberdeen testing ground right here. We didn't see him contest the green jersey at all. I thought that was weird. Like he's one of the only riders that's versatile enough and strong enough to even potentially challenge Van Art. And then today he gets in the breakaway and gets an amazing stage win. Like, do you think this was always the plan? Is this why they didn't go for green? Because then he can get up the road and Wout doesn't read it as a threat of him trying to steal intermediate sprint points. I wonder if something else was going on and what we're going to learn when the Netflix series comes out. Interesting. Interesting. Conspiracy. Uh, do you did <laughs> do you have any thoughts of why he seemed to have as the fastest rider in that group? He splits it, smartly splits it. That's like textbook tactics um why he had such willing participants with him in that group of three in the last 10 kilometers i don't know if i have an answer to that but i would love to talk to vinikurov and see what he thinks i wonder if he'll be tweeting about this i don't know if vinikurov is on twitter or if he's on there in english i guess i could get a translation but i wonder what he would think about that i've heard you don't i've heard you don't want to poke the proverbial bear there that there might be some real muscle behind the Vinokurov bluster. So we will not be adding him on Twitter, asking him about this. Um, I think there might, if you zoom in on the broadcast, if you go back and watch, you might be seeing some bills passed back and forth in that finale. That was some interesting decision-making from, from uh, at least from Hugo Hul, who, But I mean, who knows? I mean, that's kind of the beauty of, let's say he did um, mad. This is like not super uncommon to like maybe just spread the love a little bit when you're in a small group like that you know get some people some early christmas presents they get a podium finish on the stage even they know they're probably not going to beat you anyway if they just give you a few polls it sounds really unseemly it's not unbelievably uncommon um because you're not technically the vinikurov situation is a little bit different because he straight up bought a race the guy didn't try this would be you're just buying turns, and then the understanding is you're all sprinting at the end. Also, Rigoberto Iran, oof, that was a little. I mean, that's maybe another race that he <laughs> bought in addition to the one that was proven that he bought. Um, that's it, the Olympics. If you can find the tape of it, the 2012 Olympic road race, that is an interesting final kilometer. But you know, it, that's a little bit different than paying people for turns and then you all sprint with the understanding that you're all going for it um, and the money was just for, for them to pull and not to attack you. I wouldn't be shocked if that happened today. That was uh, an interesting final 10K, I thought. It was definitely an interesting final 10K. Maybe we can get into it on a future episode. Maybe it's something that, that's too hot for podcasts and we can't touch, but I am curious. Before we get sued hot? really quick, I do have one thing yeah. to add there. So, yeah, all right. <laughs> Just before, this is all speculation. And also, Israel startup, Israel Premier Tech, you would think they need wins. Like they need a win because they haven't won a, well, they have won a stage of the tour, but they need points more than anything. Like they need world tour points. And Hugo working like that ensured him a top three place because it kept the group behind them from catching them. So that's potentially another um, answer to that question of why was he working with a rider who's clearly faster than him and was going to beat him in the sprint that he just needed to secure a top three to secure as many points as possible. That would be the rebuttal to my theory. 
Yeah, these are all simply theories. We're just having a conversation and exploring <laughs> yeah. ideas. Two idiots I, having a conversation. Yeah, I'll just ask you one more question before we go here, Spencer. Why did Bike Exchange spend any time on the front today? So th they were trying to go for Dylan Gronovagan for the win. I know what they were trying to do, but do you think they believe they actually had a chance of doing that? Well, I think they would have had a chance if Caleb Ewan wouldn't have crashed. I think that screwed everything up because they needed Lotto to help them. They didn't want to work before the Cat 3 climb because they were worried they work Gronovigan gets dropped. They did all that work for nothing. They got a little too cute. They waited too long. They go to the front right after the climb. If Ewan is not off the back there, I think they get him back because they pulled back like a minute really fast and then could never, they couldn't get the rest of it back. They needed another team to come forward for them, but Jakobsen and Ewan were gone already. So there was no help to be had. Yeah, this was a, a great stage. I did enjoy it. I have to say though that we were talking on the last episode about how when you break the rhythm of the types of stages and the sequencing of the stages, you can get some really interesting results. And sometimes stuff starts to unfold in what I would call like a tour 1.0, more predictable fashion. This felt a little more tour 1.0 to me today. And I just like the bar is so high from the racing we've seen so far. I'm yeah. really looking forward to <laughs> more of that like tour, tour 2.0, you know, Ashton, like anything could happen, berserk racing. Yeah, this was like playing Nintendo 64 after playing an Xbox 360, whatever the new Xbox is called. Um, I also, I worry a little bit of this is fatigue. Like we're now paying the toll for the exciting yeah. first 11 days that at some point a return to form must happen because people are so tired. Speaking of return to form, I've got a barbecue grill to go, man. And I know that that you need to bounce to your next uh, podcast, Spencer. If you all want to be in touch with us, please reach out. We love hearing from you. We love your questions. We love dialoguing with you. You can hit up Spencer at BTP Cycling on Twitter. You can reach me at Vance or at Hardway Pod. And we want to thank you for listening. Well, thanks, Andrew, for giving your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you on the rest day on Monday. All right. Bye.